According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Philippians 1, although we won't spend a lot of time there, I'll just touch base again with the verses that launched this study, and then we'll, uh, we'll return to where we left off Wednesday night. We are doing a doctrinal study from Philippians 1. We're in between paragraphs at the moment. We've covered two-thirds of this chapter, and we're ready now to move on to uh, verses 19 and following, or really uh, 18b and following with the yes, I will rejoice repetition that happens there. Uh, So we're going to cover verse 18 through 30 as a unit, as the third portion of this chapter. Before we do, though, I want to do this doctrinal study on calls to the ministry because it's uh, an aspect that we saw in the previous paragraph in verses 12 through 18 that the uh, believers there near Paul had been called into the ministry. They had been motivated, they had been persuaded, they had been emboldened, that uh, they had been goaded into getting off their... um, uh, (laughs) Yeah, and getting into gear and moving and serving the Lord. And, uh, and that's what we all get from time to time. And, and the Lord has a marvelous way of doing that. The, verb, the Greek verb is oxuno, which speaks of a, an ox goad, that speaks of a motivation that, uh, that we need to drive us into His obedience, into His service. And so that's what we're taking the time to uh, look at here this morning. In Philippians 1.14 it says, "...most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, persuaded by the Lord." because of my imprisonment, have far more courage, have been emboldened to speak the word of God without fear. And so there's a crowd of believers that have been motivated to get busy preaching Christ, preaching the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. And some did for wrong reasons and some did for right reasons, and which we've been looking at here. I've been calling them the good guys and the bad guys, right? Um, some that have, were motivated by the wrong reasons. It was envy and strife. We notice here, uh, verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Now, that's not good. And uh, we're told that in verse 17 that they had selfish ambition. That's not good. You don't want to get into the ministry for selfish ambition. You don't want to start preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. That's not good at all. And then it goes on to say in verse 17, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And that's maybe the worst of all, the the bad reasons to go into ministry. Uh, For whatever reason you want to cause somebody distress or you want to teach somebody a lesson or you're going to show them, uh, you're going to give them the whatnot, you're going to show them, uh, give them the whatnot or the what for. Um, Why? What is is the, the motivation that's getting you into the ministry. And so on that side of things, everything is all terrible. On the positive side of things, of course, we have love uh, in verse 16, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So you have your, the motivation there being agape love and a recognition of the plan of God and his appointments. That's all uh, very positive. So anyway, these are the verses we were looking at, and this is what launched this study. And I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and we'll get right back to where we left off. So if you'll join me uh, for a word of prayer to ask the Father's blessing on our time, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this time. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open our eyes, to open our ears, to, uh, to bless us through the truth of your word. And Father, this is a, a very practical study. It's one that uh, each one of us can uh, obey and should obey, Father, because each one of us has a gift. Each one of us has a ministry. Each one of us has effects that we are to achieve for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to these things and that we would be on guard against the wrong motivations and we would be, uh, of course, embracing the right motivations for all that we do. So, Father, uh, we, once again, we call upon your faithfulness to bless this study. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so uh, making use of Philippians 1 to start uh, by means of introduction Clearly, uh, believers enter the ministry for right reasons and wrong reasons. We want to make sure that everybody that leaves Austin Bible Church does so for the right reasons, all right? Not the wrong reasons. And you can leave a church for the wrong reasons, 
Uh, but you can leave a church for the right reasons. And going forth into ministry or going forth into the next stage of ministry pursuits is always, I believe, the right reason because you're obeying Jesus Christ and you're going through the open doors that Jesus Christ has presented. Um, some some point, sub-points under here I'm going to skip through because we taught that already. Unbelievers, of course, enter the ministry always for the wrong reasons. And if that shocks you, I want to get you through that. There are unbelievers in the ministry. There are many unbelievers in the ministry. And they're preaching from pulpits this morning in their churches today, uh, all across this country and around the world. See, the uh, unbelievers that decide that through religion they have... Uh, uh, they're going to achieve something. Through religion, they're going to make God happy or they're going to earn something or somehow they're going to have something to their credit, something that they feel because they've been so busy doing all this stuff that God owes them. And this is the crowd that says, Lord, Lord, on judgment day. And they stand before the, the judgment seat and they say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this. They've got a long list of things that they did for Jesus. And yet they don't know Jesus. The uh, sad statement is, depart from me, I never knew you. And this crowd of unbelievers is going to spend all eternity in the lake of fire because they were so religious, they never uh, were humble to accept the free gift of salvation. That it's not what we can earn, earn or deserve. It's not anything that we can do. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so uh, we want to keep this in mind as well. Unbelievers, they may enter the ministry, but it's always for the wrong reasons. In the trinity of gifts, ministries, and effects, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who leads us in our ministry pursuits. All right, I won't turn there again because we've done that twice already, but uh, you should be very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. You should be very familiar with spiritual gifts that are given by God the Holy Spirit, right? Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Likewise, varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. So gifts are not the same as ministries. And the Holy Spirit gives your gift, but it's Jesus Christ. It's the Lord that opens doors of ministry. It's the Lord that leads us in our ministry. Jesus Christ is head of the church, not the Holy Spirit. So in terms of ministry pursuits, Jesus Christ is the member of Trinity that we engage with as we pursue our ministry. And then verse 6 talks about the effects, the actual workings, the achievements, the uh, things that are done in our gifts through our ministries. And that, of course, is the Father's business as we deal with Holy Spirit, Son, and Father in three consecutive verses. All right? And so that's material we've covered as well. Now we have three developments we're going to do. We finished the first development Wednesday. I'm going to move on to the second development here this morning. But uh, if you missed it, Wednesday night, we had five principles of ministry calling. And I can just throw them up there, and that's what you missed Wednesday night, all right? So uh, go go to the website, get the MP3, download it, and uh, listen, and uh, you'll get these principles spelled out. <clears throat> Real quickly, though, uh, these are the five principles for every ministry calling, all right? This is whether you're thinking about being a pastor someday or you're thinking about um, taking a shift in the nursery because uh, an email goes out that uh, the nursery worker is, is stuck in Houston and won't be back on Sunday, all right? So whatever the case may be, if there is a ministry opportunity, there is a ministry open door that's been laid before you, these are some principles to keep in mind, all right? that we do not call ourselves. Principle number one, uh, a ministry pursuit is not one for self-promotion. Do not view a ministry pursuit as a way that you're going to make a name for yourself or you're going to get famous or you're going you're to really impress Jesus because you really are impressed with yourself <laughs> and, and you can impress other people and, and all the rest. That's not what it's about. We're not here and I know there are pastors that build empires, all right, and churches and they write books and they're on the radio and they're on TV and all this stuff. We're not here for that. And so the race that's set before us, we don't check, uh, we don't choose the race that's set before us. We don't select the works beforehand. They are prepared beforehand. Before the foundation of the world, these works have been prepared, including our ministry calling. So we don't call ourselves. And that's uh, an important principle from Hebrews 5, verse 4 and 5, which is, by the way, the opposite of Satan. Satan called himself in his five I wills. Uh, that was uh, the five I will. Uh, every one of them was a calling of a place that he was not entitled to, a position that he was lusting after, a glory that he felt he was worthy of, and he was called to none of them. See, 
And the book of Hebrews makes a big point of that. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? See, uh, we don't call ourselves. Secondly, ministry callings may entail a departure from temporal work. See, you may be asked to, to leave the workforce. You may be asked to leave uh, secular employment, all right? Particularly for pastors, for missionaries, for evangelists. And we're not saying that those gifts are any better or that those roles are more important, but we're saying that not everybody quits working to, to serve Jesus, all right? And if everybody quit working to serve Jesus, well then, how would we eat? <laughs> how would that work? Somebody is, is, uh, is, uh, is, is paying for this stuff. There's, there's bills to be paid. There's the gift of giving. How would you express the gift of giving if you weren't working and if, if there was no production, see, that was supplying these things? Um, ministry callings may or may not entail a departure from temporal work. There could also be seasons when even after you've been set apart, you go back to work again in the tent-making responsibility that the Apostle Paul pursued there in Acts 18, verse 3 and verse 5, that he engaged in a season of tent-making in order to, uh, to pay the bills, in order to support the ongoing ministry. And uh, if you missed that, I would encourage you, again, listen to Wednesday night. We went through that at some length. But there's a, it's a curious thing to me. This is one that in particular I think um, we want to train early and we want to train with our men. That's why I like the model that Kiev has when they, they take their students out of the workforce and they say, while you're enrolled in the school, you cannot work a, a, a part-time job or a full-time job or anything, see, because we expect you to be a full-time disciple, a full-time student, that it's going to require all of your time and effort and energy and thinking and, and devotion. And uh, on a concentrated basis, this is what's going to prepare you for ministry. And I think beyond everything else, I mean, obviously, it helps in their studies, okay? It gives them maximum time and it sets aside all that other distraction and stuff. But you know what else it does? It teaches them how to live by grace. It teaches them how to accept what the Father supplies. It teaches them that the worker is worthy of his support, that, uh, that you don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And so hopefully the, the ideal circumstance is that they then graduate and when they go forth into ministry, they are already operating on a grace basis and looking for God and His faithfulness to supply in uh, different aspects there. So in any event, I know many of the former Kiev students are doing just that and uh, we're praying about the possibility of supporting a few of them, upwards of four or five or even six of them are now starting ministries of their own and are looking to raise uh, support on that basis and uh, we're praying about supporting them on that basis, see, and, uh, and I appreciate that. Thirdly, and I think that goes along with number two, a ministry calling may entail a geographic relocation. If a prophet has no honor in his hometown, chances are a kid that grew up in Seattle, Washington is not going to be pastoring in Seattle, Washington, all right? He'll probably get dragged somewhere hideous like Texas or something whereby uh, he will serve as an alien and a stranger in his exile, right? To the Isle of Patmos or whatever else it may be, okay? But a kid that's born in Texas may, uh, may get relocated up to Seattle, Washington on an occasion, see? And the point being is that God puts his servants where they need to be, and he does so in interesting ways. And as Jesus illustrated that, where a you know, a prophet has no honor except in his own town. You know, the, the principle there, when he went back to Nazareth, it was a train wreck. There were too many people there that remembered him as a kid, that remembered his parents, that remembered his upbringing, that some of the baggage from his past destroyed their objectivity, see? And they became just completely subjective about who does this carpenter kid think he is? And where did he get this kind of teaching? And, and so on and so forth, okay? And so that's interesting to me, that God recognizes the realities of our humanity and overcomes that by moving people elsewhere. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's kind of a, a neat thing. But are you willing to go? And, and I think with each one of these two, I think we have a line in the sand that some believers aren't willing to cross. All right? Um, the idea of not calling yourself is uh, that's a line that some believers aren't willing to cross. Because they've, uh, they've always been in charge of, of what they do and where they go and everything. And the idea of surrendering that, the idea of following somebody else's race, uh, that leaves a lot of uh, men in particular uh, uncomfortable, see. Or the idea of uh, walking away from temporal work, that hurts. A lot of men drive their identity based upon the work that they do and their achievements and what they, what they accomplish and, and different things. 
and you want me to walk away from that? I've been successful in that regard. Or uh, a geographic relocation? That's a line that some people won't cross either. See, like why, uh, why, would, I, why would I leave here? I've, always, I've lived my whole life here. I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's frightening to go somewhere that you've never been or to step out in faith and, and you know, well, think what Abraham did when the Lord called him from Ur of the Chaldees and took him to the land of, of Canaan, all right? And so each one of these is a faith test. It's an opportunity for us to either trust in God and step forth in faith or insist on, uh, on our comfort, <laughs> on our will be done, on, uh, well, I'll serve you, Lord, but uh, just, you know, right here, of course. And uh, isn't there any work right here I can do, <laughs> okay? And uh, well, he's, he wants to take you somewhere else. And so those examples are there as well. Uh, human qualifications, largely irrelevant to our ministry callings, 1 Corinthians 1. Not totally. I will grant you that in some cases that there are useful fields for uh, secular qualifications, for human qualifications. If you have a talent for something and you've trained that talent and you've developed that talent and so forth, uh, there's nothing wrong with using that talent for the glory of Jesus Christ. We should use all of our talents for the glory of Jesus Christ. However, we're not limited to that. And it may very well be that our primary ministry pursuit will have nothing at all to do with our natural abilities, our aptitudes, our background, our talents, and so forth. Okay, And that was one that maybe had the toughest time with, with some folks asking questions about that after class or sending emails in the meantime. Um, if, if you have a skill, why not use it? See, And I get that. That, that is true. Why not use it? And you can do all kinds of things for the Lord. We've got freedom to do that. But we're not saying that, that God is limited in that regard. Not many mighty, not many wise according to the flesh. God chooses the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are. Let me, uh, we're going to gain new ground this morning, but just let me turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and let's look at it again so that we're clear. <laughs> You know, and, and so, because we talk about, you know, George Ann and her violin, and we talk about Jacob and his singing voice, and we talk about people that have talents, okay? Which is strange for me, because <laughs> I, I admire people that have talent, all right? But the, uh, why not use those? If God has, if you were born that way, if God has blessed you with a particular talent, and you've spent time nurturing that talent, and you have experience because you've developed it, you've trained it, you've, you've, you've done that, okay? And by the way, this is what the Old Testament calls wisdom, okay? Chachma, wisdom, is not just knowing stuff, but actually the, the trained development of talents and skills are also called wisdom, all right? And so is there anything wrong with somebody who says, hey, I know how to play piano, can I play piano for the church? Hey, I know how to you know, I know how to hammer nails, can I fix your fence? Or, you know, things like that. There's nothing wrong with using human qualifications to serve the Lord. However, don't confuse that with a gift and don't confuse that with a ministry calling. Okay? They may overlap, they don't have to. And they may not overlap at all. And so that's the point. As we see here, consider your calling, brethren. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Okay, not many. It doesn't say none at all, but it does say not many. And so there are exceptions to the rule and occasionally there will be a mighty man or a noble man or a wise man that gets saved and gets called into ministry and is used in this capacity. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. As a rule, more often than not, that's how God prefers to operate. Uh, the uh, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Much more common, much more often than not, much more frequently. That's how God chooses to operate. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Okay, And that's the pattern. So in considering your calling, just stop and consider that God may not have selected you because of, of who you are, what you are, what you can do. God didn't just pick you because he looked down from heaven and just couldn't help himself, right? He looked down and said, oh my, wow, what a special person. I just have to, I, I got to use that person, all right? More often than not, 
he chooses the biggest buffoons he can. He finds the, uh, those that, uh, that are going to give him the greatest glory. See, he, he would much prefer to win a battle with 10 troops than 300 troops, than 3,000 troops, than a million troops. All right? Why did he cut Gideon down to size? And then again, and why did he have the smallest imaginable so that Gideon can't boast about winning the battle? They didn't win because of their numbers. Okay? And that's how God prefers to operate. In such a way that human beings can't be confused about who gets the glory. God gets the glory in all that he does. All right. And then the final aspect is ministries are assigned based upon faithfulness. 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says that, that the Lord counted him faithful. And so he was giving thanks. Even though he was a persecutor, even though he didn't deserve it, formerly, 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So uh, if you think there's something in your past that's going to keep you from serving God, think again. Say, well, you don't know about my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know about my whatever, okay? Well, I know a few things. But anyway, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care, okay? The past is the past. We're forgetting what lies behind. We're reaching forward to what lies ahead. And maybe there is something in your past that isn't exactly a resume enhancement, okay? God chooses the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are, see? And so when you talk about a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, well, there you go. Are those qualifications to be an apostle? Okay, not at all. But despite all that, God called the Apostle Paul into service. And uh, that's a it's a curious thing, all right? I think it's a, it's a blessing, all right? And so the idea of faithfulness, faithfulness being a qualifier for ministry, that they are assigned on the basis of faithfulness. When God opens a door, He opens a door for faithful believers to step through. And when you're faithful in, in little things, He entrusts you with bigger things, right? And we have patterns there, and we have principles there. We see again and again throughout the Scriptures. And, uh, and I like to use... Uh, Joseph is a, is a great example for this because he was faithful uh, as a boy and he was faithful growing up and he was faithful in his father's house and he was so faithful he's given that coat of many colors he's given responsibilities over his brothers uh, shall we say less faithful than him okay and, uh, and what was that preparing him for there was work to be done that, that he didn't know about his father didn't know about nobody knew about but God knew about it so he was preparing him for that work. And then he gets sold into slavery. And we know his brothers abused him and threw him in a well and tried to kill him and then packed him off to Egypt in slavery. And he ends up in Potiphar's house. Okay? But God's faithful, is he not? And he's rewarding Joseph's faithfulness. And so Joseph stays faithful. Now Joseph is faithful in in Potiphar's house, right? Even when Mrs. Potiphar is causing trouble. (laughs) All right? And Joseph stays faithful there. And all these things. And, and, and you'll note, too, it's, it's why it's a great example to use. You can teach this um, in a Sunday school class. You can teach this in family devotions or any time. You can go to this example of Joseph and see every step of the way he stays faithful and yet something bad happens. You know? He stays faithful and his brothers sell him into slavery. He stays faithful and Mrs. Potiphar you know, accuses him of rape and, and he goes to jail. And so then he goes to jail. So what's worse than being a slave? Being a slave in jail, right? And now he's in, in prison and he stays faithful. And there's more ministry to be... Uh, so he has, he's had ministry every step of the way. And each ministry is preparing for the next ministry and it's not one that he would have expected. He wasn't expecting that ministry to his brothers was going to prepare him for Potiphar's house or ministry there was going to prepare him for prison. Our ministry in prison was going to prepare him to uh, be exalted by Pharaoh to the heights of, of political power in ancient Egypt. But each step of the way, he demonstrated faithfulness. And God rewarded that. God will always reward that, see. And so uh, that becomes a, a significant thing. By the way, gifts are not given on the basis of faithfulness. It's one of the differences between gifts and ministries. 
God doesn't look at faithfulness and say, ooh, I've got to give you this gift because you've been so faithful. Your gift was given in the moment of your salvation and it was designed before the foundation of the, of the, of the earth. So it's a grace thing. That's why it's a charisma, a grace thing. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it. No amount of faithfulness will get you a, a particular gift. See? But ministries is, is another thing. All right, so those are the principles of ministry calling. Now secondly, I'm going to go through some illustrations of ministry calling. And so if you'll join me then as we turn to Exodus chapter 2, our first illustration is Moses. Exodus chapter 2. Join me in Exodus chapter 2. And we'll look at Moses. Because Moses illustrates prideful, premature, non-calling. Moses illustrates prideful, premature, non-calling. You know, if you promote yourself, you're not promoted. If the Lord doesn't promote you, you're not promoted. You ever heard that before? Okay? I think I heard it a thousand times growing up. All right? Because it was a it was a centerpiece on Pastor Theme and his ministry, and then Pastor Jensen and Eichmann, and a lot of the pastors I grew up under would use that. And, you know, in Exodus chapter 2, what was Moses thinking when he attempted to rescue his brethren? Did he think he was being called as a savior? And uh, so it's curious to me here in Exodus chapter 2. Um, we have all of his upbringing and, and all of this, and we. We have uh, the birth of Moses in the first part of the chapter and floating down the river and growing up with uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, You talk about God sovereignly controlling circumstances, putting this baby where this baby needs to be. And so uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and of course she needs a wet nurse, and so, hey, I, I know a lady that can be your wet nurse, and obviously it is Moses' real mother, and how cool is that, that uh, his real mother gets to be the wet nurse. Um, all right, so that's the story. And we get down through uh, verse 10, and so um, the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, based on the Hebrew name of, of drawing forth, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days, when Moses had grown up, now, there's a lot of time that passes there, right? <laughs> okay? And if you want to learn what happens in between verse 10 and verse 11, we've got a little bit of commentary that can be found in Stephen's message of Acts chapter 7 that talks about his education and his training and how he was powerful in, in literature and the, and the learning of the Egyptians. There's also different Jewish legends and traditions that Josephus preserves for us that, that include uh, his military experience and a campaign that he, uh, that he led as a general uh, against, I think it was the Nubians or something like that. Um, there's a lot of other history that goes into Moses in between verse 10 and verse 11. But Scripture chooses to give us this. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. So he knows who his brethren are. He knows who his mother supposedly is. And he knows, obviously, who Pharaoh is. But he also knows who his brethren are. And he looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. All right, so however else you want to describe this, this is uh, premeditated murder. He looked this way and that. He checked to see, uh, you know, if there were any witnesses. You know, if you're thinking about a particular sin and you want to do the sin and then you look around and then you start to plot and you plan and then you start to consider um, whether you're going to get caught or not, all right, let me tell you, you are already out of fellowship. (laughs) You are already carnal long before you do the deed. If If you want to do it so badly that, that all it really comes down to now is the how, because you've already figured out the what, okay? You know what you're going to do. You're just not sure, you know, where or when or, you know, with who. Uh, you probably know with who. And you're just trying to figure out the details, right? Your place or mine. You're trying to, you're, 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 you're plotting your sin, okay? You're plotting your sin. And if, if your only concern is not getting caught, you're already carnal because you've already decided to do it. In the mental attitude sin, you've already done it. 
And so here he is with premeditated murder. And um, murdered the Egyptian, hit him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Now what does he think he's doing? Why does he think he's doing this? What does he think he's going to accomplish? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? And I think that accusation right there, Scripture now is giving us the insight into what his thinking was. Okay? A premature non-calling. Now, Moses will be God's tool, just not for 40 more years. He's a little bit early on the, uh, on the process. And that's us. We get impatient. And we don't want to wait 40 years to, to do something. Okay? But Moses had to wait 40 years. And uh, by the way, Jesus is an illustration of this. At the age of 12, he was ready to, to enter into ministry. And uh, his mother wasn't ready for that yet. And, and, and we're going to talk about that. That's a powerful chapter too. So who made you a prince or a judge over us? You know, did you appoint yourself? Ministry callings, we don't call ourselves. What are you doing? Have you, have you seen a burning bush yet, Moses? Okay. You haven't been called yet. So what are you doing? And then he goes on to say, are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. So much for covering your tracks. So much for nobody seeing what you're doing. Somebody always sees, right? God always sees. And in this case, these guys saw it. So Moses uh, was afraid. Moses was afraid, right? That's not fear of the Lord. That's human fear. When you enter into the ministry, it better be in the fear of the Lord, not human fear. Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. And so then Pharaoh heard of the matter. So he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, sat down by a well. All right. And so at the age of 40, Moses becomes a a, a criminal, becomes a renegade, and he's hiding. He's living in exile out there in Midian. And and so you can break down Moses. Moses lived 120 years, 40 years, 40 years, 40 years, right? 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then at the age of 80, he was prepared to lead Israel, and he did so for 40 years of their wilderness wanderings. He died right before they entered into the promised land. So anyway, just think about it. Kind of chart out your life, and if you want to divide it into thirds, and you start to think that maybe you're two thirds of the way through, well, then now you know it's the time to get busy, and uh, this this doctrine may become very important for you then as you listen to the uh, the Father's calling. Um, if you want some more um, on this, Acts seven gives us a divine commentary here on Moses. This is in Stephen's message. Uh, verses 22 through 29. Also we have Hebrews 11 where Moses is mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith in uh, considering the uh, looking to the heaven, looking to the reward rather than the treasures of Egypt. Uh, but Acts 7, 22 through 29. Moses was, uh, let's see, after he had been set outside, Moses, uh, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. Okay, that's not Josephus' commentary, that's the Holy Spirit commentary on how Moses grew up in uh, all the learning of the Egyptians. And when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren and the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. A little social justice warrior here going on, right? Is that our business? Or does vengeance belong to the Lord? Okay. And he supposed, that's what happens when you suppose, that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Don't you know? I'm your Savior. No, I didn't know that. (laughs) Okay? Does anyone else have that opinion? Who told you you were our Savior? See? Jesus said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And Mary says, no, didn't know that. Your father didn't know that. What are you doing? Uh, We've been looking for you for three days now. So he supposed, but they did not understand. 
So on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Man, your brethren, why do you injure one another? And uh, the rest of this, I think, is comparable to what we just read in Exodus, and it quotes Exodus. The one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, you know, get out of here, I want to continue injuring my brother. Um, Pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And so it's interesting, what, what does it take? His Egyptian background is not what qualified him to deliver Egypt, or to deliver Israel out of Egypt. But what did he learn for 40 years under Jethro? What did he learn from the priest of Midian? What did he learn? Okay, I think he got the book of Job. I believe the book of Job was, was uh, a uh, tradition, it was a doctrine that he had learned from Jethro and then wrote down in the Hebrew Scriptures. In any event. So we have that. And, and so uh, you can, uh, what I'm calling the prideful, premature, non-calling all right. If it hasn't happened yet, then it's a non-calling. It may happen someday, but we're not there yet. So until we get there, you've not yet been called. All right. We're going to train your gift. We're going to prepare you for ministry. And we want you to be equipped and trained and prepared and skilled and, and experienced and everything so that when the call does come, we have a great joy at your departure and not a... Uh, this is not going to work. <laughs> okay. Wow. Hmm. All right. Okay. We want to be able with joy to commend a minister to the grace of God and to the Word of God and uh, on a positive excitement such as we're doing today. All right. Not in response to a prideful, premature non-calling with, uh, well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, that's a tough road. Okay, and, uh, and there it is. All right, Moses gives us a second illustration, though, with what I'm calling a reluctant, resistant calling. You know, and so the pendulum swings one direction, and then the pendulum swings completely the opposite direction. Whereas before, he was eager to jump into things with both feet before he was really called. Then when the calling truly does come, now he wants to drag his feet. Now he wants to not respond. And so you go from one extreme to another, just like Peter who went from, oh, no, no, you can't wash my feet to, oh, well, hang on a second, just dunk all of me now. You can wash everything, right? So it just swings from one end to the other to the other. And now here's Moses with this example in chapter 3 where he's uh, reluctant and where he's resisting his calling. And now he really does have a burning bush. And now he really is being called into ministry. And so... um, we have this here, and we're familiar with the burning bush, and, and uh, starting in verse 2, really, um, or even verse 1, Moses pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and all the debates about what mountain that was and all the rest. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. This is Jesus Christ. This is God the Son. Second member of Trinity, in a pre-incarnate Christophany, he's not yet virgin born, he's not yet in the flesh, and so he appears in a variety of different ways. Here he appears as a burning bush. And uh, he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. And uh, so the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, and God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And so think about those two steps there. Think about the persuasion and the emboldening, all right? Because he was persuaded to turn aside and look, and now he's going to be emboldened to uh, enter into ministry. Here I am. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And uh, this is his call now. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And this, this, uh, so much we can preach with this. Goodness, what do I do? All right. Jesus explains then, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt 
and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. Well, what took you so long? <laughs> you know, it, really? 40 years now, you're just figuring this out? Okay. Don't think that God is slow as some count slowness, right? He is patient and he knows what he is doing and his timing is perfect. Pharaoh was not yet prepped. Moses was not yet prepped. The people were not yet prepped. A lot of things have to happen before other things can happen. And God's got a handle on all of this. Absolutely has a handle on all of this. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's something else that had to be prepared. The iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. To the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Seven nations greater and mightier than Israel. And God gave each of them time to repent, but they would not repent. And so when the abominations of their practices were fulfilled, then the uh, sentence was passed that it was time to exterminate the, uh, the Sevenites and to... Uh, to bring Israel into their land. So all of this, of course, is in the Father's design. So behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing. Oh yeah, by the way, their slavery, their hardship, that's kind of an also, right? That's kind of an an additional comment beyond everything else. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're suffering. See, we tend to exalt human suffering to the pinnacle of first and foremost and everything else is just kind of ancillary. No. God says that His will, His plan, the unfolding of His purpose, the, uh, the glory of Jesus Christ from Alpha and Omega, all of those things are center stage. And then these other things are circumstances and details of life. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. That's His call. And now he's going to be reluctant. Now he's going to be resistant. Now he's going to say, "Eh, I'm not really up to this. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Okay. By the way, this is a different Pharaoh by now. There's the Pharaoh of the oppression. There's the Pharaoh that drives Moses away. And then there's the Pharaoh of the Exodus 40 years later when we got three different Pharaohs that uh, we have to identify through secular history. So who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. In other words, what are my qualifications? Well, don't you remember Moses? Point five in Pastor Bob's outline? No, point four. Human qualifications are largely irrelevant to our ministry callings. Okay? Now, Moses didn't have our MP3s, so we'll cut him some slack. But the... Uh, I'm joking. Can we relax? All right. The uh, <coughs> reluctant, resistant calling. And think of all the excuses people make. Think of all the excuses we make for why I just don't feel worthy. Okay, well, what do you think? You think God's stupid? Okay, you think, uh, you think uh, God doesn't know how worthy you are, doesn't know how unworthy you are, doesn't, God knows what he's doing. And if he considers you faithful and has put you into service, then why don't you consider yourself faithful and, and obey the service that he's putting you into? Well, you, are you going to argue with him? Say, well... And then what's God going to say? Oh, okay, you're right. I'm sorry, what was I thinking? Yeah, you're a moron. I don't want to use you. You know, He's not going to do that. Not at all. Who am I? Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel. And he said, certainly I will be with you. So he gives him the encouragement here. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have, brought, who have uh, sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship at this mountain. And he gives Moses a sign. But Moses can't see that sign until he obeys. And I love that. He says, this is, this is your encouragement, now go do what you're told. And when you've done what you're told, this will prove to you that, that I'm with you. You're going to be here at this very mountain with the nation of Israel and you're going to be worshiping. And uh, in any event, Moses said to God, verse 13, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? And the the rest of this is is interesting as we get to that. Um, The the revelation of the significance of Yahweh, the significance of Eye, the I am principle that underlies the name of Yahweh. 
different aspects there, the different miracles he's given to do. We get down to chapter 4 and verse 10. <laughs> now he gets some uh, signs to perform. He can throw a staff down and turn it into a serpent. He can um, stick his hand in and pull it out and uh, turn the leprosy on and off. Okay, That's verse 6 here of chapter 4. Put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom and took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put it back and came out clean. I mean, isn't that cool? You know, and it's not just a magic act for a, you know, a nightclub or something. But I mean, it's, it's, but it's something tangible, okay? And, and you might remember 40 years ago, the, the Jewish response was, well, who called you? Who made you a judge or a ruler over us? And uh, this is now part of the credentials, part of what he's going to do, signs or credentials that say, look, God is with me. God has called me. God has sent me. He's given me power. Here's my snake. Here's my leprosy. Okay. Can you do that? All right. No. Okay. Well, then I guess God didn't call you, did he? He called me. All right. And if he has faith, he can go and do this. But you see, even with the miracles... Verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Now that's staggering, because didn't we read Acts chapter 7 already? They said he was powerful in word and deed. The Holy Spirit says he's powerful in word and deed. And here's Moses saying, I'm not eloquent. I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. And I think that's what really bothers him the most. Not just the recently, but the times past. I mean, he's been away from politics for 40 years. He's been away from, from, you know, he has not been engaged with Pharaoh and the court and his mother and his aunt and his uncles and all the, the generals and all the other power brokers of Egypt. He's kind of been away. And now he's dreading the idea of going back and being back in those circles again because he mentions both recently, also mentions times past. You know, that former manner of life. Do you remember back... You know, man, if I had to handcuff a suspect today, how you know that was that was a past life. That was that was a long time ago. And I used to be good. Man. Quick, lickety split, click, click, there you go. And even, I mean, we would have practice and drills and we'll make little games out of it. And you could do it one-handed, left-handed, right-handed, because you never knew which hand was free, and slap them on there. If I had to do it today, I'd, I'd imagine it would be, it'd be funny. Um, and, and so is that, what he's, is that what he's hung up on? Uh, Nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And for a guy that's slow of tongue, he's sure arguing a lot. <laughs> and the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? See, seeing or blind? Is it not I? See, I'm in charge of all this. Quit complaining. I picked you, so go do what I told you. All right. He says, go and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And we can glean from this. Any pastor can claim this. You can claim this as an evangelist. You can claim this as a Sunday school teacher, whatever it is. If he's called you to a ministry, that means he's going to be working in and through you. That means the effects are still the Father's business. The Holy Spirit empowers your gift. Jesus Christ leads you in your ministry and God the Father will accomplish the effects. It's not about you. It's about what God does through you and your willingness to be His tool. Are you willing? Are you humble before Him? And uh, so then, hey, you know, my brother can help. Let's send him. Um, All the way, even even in chapter 6, he's still... Chapter 6 and verse 12... Moses spoke before the Lord saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. So he actually did go. He actually did obey. He actually did serve a little bit. And uh, the the response was not exactly rousing or positive. And so, you know, at the first sign of discouragement, that's when clearly you have to leave the ministry because you're just a washed up failure. And Moses, and this is kind of an I told you so, Lord. Moses spoke before the Lord saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. I told you so. (laughs) It's that woman you gave me, Lord. You remember the excuse Adam made? Okay. I told you don't send me. You should have sent Aaron. 
Anyway, so we've got two illustrations here with Moses. Our second illustration is Joshua. We move into the next generation. I'm going to kind of combine Joshua and Timothy together. Joshua and Timothy illustrate the blessings of preparing in one's youth to carry the ministry into the next generation. Originally I had them as separate points, but decided they're the same point made twice. Uh, let's put them together in the same in the same point here. Point two. Joshua, Exodus 33.11, Numbers 11.28, and Timothy, 1 Corinthians 4.17, Philippians 3.22. Joshua and Timothy illustrate the blessings of preparing in one's youth to carry the ministry into the next generation. Joshua trained under Moses and then succeeded Moses when Moses died. Timothy trained under Paul and then continued on in the ministry after Paul after Paul died, after Paul was beheaded. All right? The blessings of preparing in one's youth to carry the ministry into the next generation. And the ministry that they are preparing for, well, let's see. Let's take a look at it. Exodus 33. Does this seem like it's ministry preparation to you? Exodus 33, 11. Um... Back up to verse 7. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses... See, remember, Moses was separate. Moses was not Aaron. Moses was not the high priest. I think he could have been, but forsook that. All right? This is what happens when you disobey callings and you face consequences on things. But this tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. It's not the temple. This is where uh, the Lord would fellowship with Moses. Okay, And um, it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Oh, there goes Moses again. Okay? And whenever Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent. All the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And it was a time to worship because Yahweh was talking to Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Okay? So he had one job to do. (laughs) All right? Here he is. This is his responsibility from his youth. From his youth, we're told. And um, we see it there. Over to Numbers 11 and verse 28. And um, another episode of something else that's happening here. You got Eldad and Medad, and they um, they should have been with the seventy elders, and they weren't. They were missing. Don't know why. Uh, they had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the one was Medad. The spirit rested upon them, so they start prophesying. And you know, a little bit late to the program here, but there it is. And then a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And this goes into some other things. What all I'm really trying to highlight here in this class is that phrase in verse 28. Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth. Okay? So this was a long process of training from childhood on up through 40 years of wilderness wanderings. I do like this story, though. I like Moses' response. Are you jealous for my sake? <laughs> you know? And this is curious to me, because you've got an old man, you've got a young man. One who's been in ministry for a while, and one that's preparing to be in ministry. Because Joshua's going to follow Moses when Moses dies. And so you've got an old man, you've got a young man here. And uh, the young man gets hot and bothered pretty quick. He's all bothered about something. 
And then the old man just kind of slows down and says, really? Have you thought that through? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Moses says, we don't have enough Spirit-filled people around here. And wouldn't it be great if someday everybody had the Holy Spirit? (laughs) You know, we have what Moses dreamed of, what Moses thought would be just ideal. Wouldn't that be great if everybody had the Holy Spirit? That's what you and I have in the church age. It's what Israel will receive in their millennial kingdom. But back in Moses' day, very few. Okay, Only the prophets that were called into prophetic ministry, basically. Very few beyond that. And so uh, this is, this is kind of interesting. I remember in the uh, training that, uh, that Ralph gave me and he would uh, we'd sit over in the parsonage and he'd prop his feet up in the recliner and, and uh, we'd sit there on the couch, two or three of us that were there in training. And, and uh, he'd ask you know, different Bible questions and then he'd ask different scenarios. He'd say, okay, you're the pastor. Here's your church. Here's the problem. Somebody comes up to you and this is, this is what they say. You know, what do you do about it? You know, and all these hypotheticals. And then after a while, you started to figure out, you know, some of those aren't so hypothetical. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think I know what you're talking about. Okay. And, and so the closer you got to, to ordination, the, the more you were clued into different things. But then he'd say, okay, you're the pastor. What do you do? And then, you know, Stan Newton or Donnie or me or, or George or any of these guys, we, we'd come up with something we thought was good, we thought was biblical, you know. And usually it was kind of Joshua-like here, okay? Restrain them. That just needs to stop, right? Put your foot down. Throw them out of the church or whatever. You know, you come up with a solution. And I'll never forget how many times that Ralph would just kind of smile and say, okay, yeah, a young man would say that. And then he'd say, I used to say that. And he'd say, well, what about this? And then he'd say, have, we'd turn to another passage. And then he'd bring up another principle. And he'd bring up another concept. He'd say, well, what about something? And oh. And then we'd sit there and go, I never thought of that. Okay. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> yeah, that's probably more gracious. <laughs> okay. All right, we won't, we're not going to stone them if uh, that's not an option in the church age. So, okay. Anyway, we have this dynamic. We got the old man, we got the young man, and he's learning. And how is he learning? Just sitting in the tent, what does that do? Well, it does a lot. Think about what he overhears. Think about what he listens to. Think about, think about the conversations between him and Moses. See, he probably, I imagine he set up the, the cot. I think he did the laundry. I think he did most of the cooking, fixed breakfast. I think uh, he refilled the oil in the lamps. Yeah. You know, when it got time to move, who, who was it that was breaking down the tent? Who was it that was packing up the mules and the donkeys? And um, Does that stuff get you ready for ministry? Well, are you, are you, are you too good for that? Are you, are you above that? Pitching a tent? Dumping a, a chamber pot? Who did that? Okay. Anyway. Uh, Timothy is our next example. I'm going to run out of time. 1 Corinthians 4.17 and Philippians 3.22. And uh, it's good that we get to Philippians because uh, this is a Philippians study after all. 1 Corinthians 4.17. A young man that uh, Paul was going to dispatch to Corinth. And uh, he says, uh, 1, Timothy, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He's going to send Timothy. And Timothy has a chance to uh, review the doctrine that they should have already known. All right, and then Philippians 3.22 Later on, he'll kind of think a second time about maybe not sending Timothy. And when he gets to chapter 16, he says, well, I may not send Timothy to you. But if I do send him to you, make sure he's not, treat him well. (laughs) Make sure that he's not afraid. All right. And then Philippians 3.22, we'll have to pick that up. It's interesting too, the qualifications for service are not academic. All right. It comes down to 
like-mindedness. It comes down to humility. It comes down to um, seeking the benefit of others. His proven worth. He served with me like a, in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And there were a lot of people Paul couldn't send. He said, I can't send these other people. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Yes, 2.22. Okay, not chapter 3, it's chapter 2. Gotcha. 2.22. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for this time, we thank you for this lesson, and I pray, Father, that we would be learning from these lessons, that we would be imitators, Father, of, of uh, Timothy, be a good example, uh, that we would avoid some of the other snares of uh, Joshua and his youth. We, wanna, we want to uh, imitate Joshua and his maturity, that'd be great, Father, we can go and conquer and, and do that, but uh, we've got to grow up. Joshua had to grow up, and we all do, Father. So open our eyes to see how these things take place so that we can enter into our, the fullness of our ministry pursuits. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.